Thank you for joining the Dark Light Podcast. Here at the Dark Light Podcast, you will find information about the absolute truth. Hang on tight as we go to discover the light in the darkness. In the world, there are only two spirits. Spirit of good and the spirit of evil. This fact is highly disregarded, especially by theologians and priests and preachers and the clergy in general. It is very important that we set the record straight, that we look at the way in which words are interpreted, in which words become meaningful. When we look in the Bible, we immediately see that the Bible is full of words. It's almost an obvious statement. The issue that arises is what do the words mean? How did the words get there? And is there more than one meaning to the concept of a word or words? Sometimes life requires us to think. Sometimes we just can't close our eyes and muddle through life as if the answers don't exist, as if we can just throw away the handbook. We can disregard the rules of life. For many of us, we think that the rules are non-existent. We've grown up our entire lives watching other people live their lives with apparently no rules. The only rules they follow are the ones that keep them out of jail, keep them from getting speeding tickets, keep them clear of the law. Law enforcement, the job of police officers and security personnel, homeland security, the military, military police. We have given great 
credibility over the years to these man-made institutions, man-made organizations, which in some form dictate where the red line is drawn. Sometimes these rules are challenged. That's why we have a court system so that we can justify, rectify a situation. Sometimes if the crime is severe enough, people go to jail. People get put on death row. People are executed for violating the law. So it is very important that we understand how words shape concepts, how words are used. Sometimes the same word is used in multiple ways. It is this fact that is very much at issue today. Dictionaries are being rewritten. Encyclopedias are being edited simply because words are being upended, used in ways which have never been used before. As an example, today, many people believe that they can choose their gender. It's no longer, in their minds, a scientific fact that when you're born, you're born with a specific gender, male or female. Now you can see videos of people suggesting that the doctor is only guessing when you're born and he ascribes to you a gender, which later in life, if you decide that you don't feel that gender was biologically your gender, you can just change it and then you no longer are that gender. So words, he, she, male, female, now are being changed to more generic words like they and them. And they made up a new category of people called non-binary. As if that's a category that's scientifically proven, which it is not. The problem with people today is that they want to change the meaning of words. What's interesting about that is people have been changing the meaning and definition of words 
for a very long time, hundreds, maybe thousands of years, languages evolve, languages morph, languages take on new words, new meaning to those words. So, to suggest that words like in Latin are non-changeable, that's why Latin's called a dead language, because the word meanings and the words themselves haven't changed for hundreds of years. But most languages especially the more modern languages, can be adapted to different situations, to different groups of people. We hear about slang terms. And after some time has gone by, certain slang words end up in the dictionary as regular words. It wasn't so long ago that the word gay simply meant happy or somebody who was at a party having a good time. He was having a gay old time. But as time progressed, words like gay began to take on a different meaning. The word morphed into something which had never really been understood before. And so that word took on a new description, a new meaning. When we begin to look the Word of God, the Bible. We must recognize that the words presented in the book, the Bible, were written down many years ago. And we must understand the original intent the original meaning to the words and phrases that we are now reading. Without that understanding, we run the risk of misapplying and misunderstanding the meaning of the words, the verses, the chapters, and the whole entire Bible as a whole. So, for the next few minutes, I'm going to look at some words that have formed concepts in our minds, which come directly to us from the Word of God. John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
with God, and the Word was God. This opening statement of one of the disciples, one of the closest disciples to Jesus the Christ, in trying to explain the formation of Jesus the Christ coming down from heaven as a divine God and then being made in human form. Divinity transforming into humanity. This is known as the mystery of the incarnation. John here uses a word which is famously now known as the Logos. The Greek word Logos is the word translated into English as Word. So in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was the Et Logos, or everything pertaining to the first Logos. Now, this statement has been misunderstood, mistranslated, and argued and debated over by many theologians. In fact, whole churches have been created over this verse. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, when John was writing, did he write in Greek? Did he write down his ideas in the Greek language, or were his ideas translated into the Greek language? This question is extremely important because so much emphasis has been put on the word logos. To the Greek mind, the word logos has an almost ethereal meaning to it. It is a word which comes to us in English as logo, something people use to advertise their business. It can be a picture, a word, a letter, and we call it a logo. But to the Greeks, the word logos had a much deeper significant meaning, almost a mystical unknown. So we must ask the question, did John intend for us to read the meaning of the word logos, the meaning of the words et logos into his verse? into his book. Later on, John says, and the Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among men. This transformation process of the Word becoming flesh is extremely important as a concept. And we must understand that most theologians 
do not want to explain this issue, for it is almost so mystical that it defies explanation. So we just tend to rely on the Greek rendition of the word logos. And then we quickly translate it into other languages such as English as a simple word, W-O-R-D. And yet, the meaning of the English word, word, has a completely different understanding to the average person. It doesn't contain the mystical, sublime interpretation and understanding that the Greeks would have placed on the word logos. So in understanding these concepts, we must realize that we must take into account the contextual meaning of the word. We also see that the Greeks defined the word love in such a way that they split the word love into many different arrangements so that in Greek the word love had several specific ideas connected to that word whereas in English the word love is pretty generic we make the word love in English mean almost anything. If you really like the food you're eating, you say, oh, I love my food. If you have a very cute pet, you say, oh, I love my dog, I love my cat. If you have family, you say, oh, I love my mom and dad, I love my brother, my sister. And so the word love in English has many different nuances. But the Greeks, when they saw a word like love, they categorized it in blocks so that there were different understandings of the word love that almost were incompatible with each other. So we have the most common way of using the word love in Greek is the agape love, which many theologians will argue that that is God love. But when you look in the lexicon, the actual word comes from agape o which doesn't have a very strong definition or origin source. And they say that in the lexicon. So that we begin to see that this word that is ascribed to God love or the love of God 
is very non-specific in the sense that it is applied to logic and the love of logic. Not so much a type of love that we would say is more like filial love, which is more family-oriented love for the Greeks. And it definitely can never be combined with the word eros or erotic love. So that for the Greeks and people like Aristotle and Plato, they made a point of disregarding sexual love or sexual activity as being a part of love. So even in this day and age, when we say we have a platonic relationship, it means it's a relationship with no sex because Plato believed that sex was somehow not aspiring to the divine and therefore was unnecessary. So we have to understand that when these words like love, as in 1 John, where we see that there is a statement that God is love, and he who does not love is not of God. Because God is love. These statements have been understood, interpreted in a context which is Greco-Roman. Rather than looking at the statements themselves for what they actually say. So this splitting of words causes the splitting of meanings. And so we begin to disassociate true love from all of these wonderful activities and understandings that we have of love itself. So let me be clear. The Bible is its own interpreter we must understand that the Holy Spirit is present to explain the Bible if we ask. However, we still have to look carefully at the context of the words themselves and not misunderstand the meaning of the words simply because they are translated from a language which had very specific categories that we do not have in English. Another example of this is the word faith. And when we look in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we read, And without faith 
it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And Hebrews 11 verse 1 states that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Hebrews chapter 11 has famously been called the faith chapter because not only does it give us a biblical definition of the word faith, but it describes the faith life. And without faith, as the Bible teaches, it's impossible to please God. So faith becomes an integral part of the Christian experience as well as any religious experience. So much so that some people, when they can't explain their theology because it's not found in the Bible, they say, well, you just have to take it on faith. Sometimes we use the word in English, faith, to mean our particular denominational church affiliation. My faith teaches. So it is very important to understand the context of this word as it is used in Scripture. Faith is important for the understanding of all things spiritual. And then we come to the words spirit and soul. These two words in English are so misused and convoluted from other languages that the intent of the words themselves have been so misapplied in English that we use these words in a way that overlook the original meaning of the words themselves. Just to briefly explain that idea, in Hebrew, the two main words for spirit slash soul is nefesh or nefak and ruach. Whereas in Greek, the words are suki and pneuma. In order to try and make the Old Testament turn into a Greek lexicon, the translators claim that the Hebrew words correspond exactly to the Greek words for soul slash spirit. Nothing could be further from the truth. The very concepts that the Greeks had were considered blasphemy 
to the early Christian church. So that by the time the Bible begins to be translated into many different languages, there was already an Old Testament Septuagint Greek version, which had been created specifically for Greek-speaking Jews, not Christians, but Greek-speaking Jews. Later on, the New Testament was translated into Greek for the Christians. This fact is overlooked by all major theological seminaries and theologians. Why? Because in order to promote their non-scriptural theology, they need the Greek rendition of words to have an English-Greek parallelism. And so this parallelism is extended to the Hebrew words themselves, which cannot be done. So let me be clear. When theologians claim that words in Hebrew correspond exactly to words in Greek, they're being disingenuous at best. So when we see this word spirit slash soul, which can also be translated as heart, mind, wind, violent exhalation of air, we must look at the context of the verse itself to understand all of the possible meanings within that context for the use of that particular word, whether it be suki, numa, or nefesh. So once again, it is extremely important to check these words. Look at the context and understand that the translators themselves have an agenda. And we must not be tricked into their agenda, which later becomes theology for many denominations and churches. So now we see that in John 17, verse 3, we see that Jesus the Christ is praying to his Father in heaven. It's a very interesting prayer in the fact that Jesus is asking his Father to glorify him with the glory which he had from the beginning. 
clearly indicating that Jesus is knowledgeable about his past existence, about the fact that he once was the Logos in heaven and that he came to earth and became a man, the son of man, as he called himself, in order to show humans how to live a God life. So let's look closely at this prayer that Jesus is praying here in John chapter 17. John 17 verse 1 After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And then when we see verse 3, Jesus continues. And in this verse, Jesus clearly shows that he is requesting something from his Father that has to do with who he is. And it says, Now, this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So here Jesus the Christ appears to be calling himself Jesus Christ. He appears to be speaking to his Father, the one, the only true God. So in English, when we look at this verse, theologians have created theology out of this verse, and they've stated that there is only one true God, and that Jesus Christ is his Son, and that Jesus Christ is praying to his Father. There's only one problem. When we look at this verse, we have to ask the question, was Jesus speaking English when he was praying this prayer? And the obvious answer is no. But the more important question is, was Jesus speaking Greek when he prayed this prayer? And the answer is no, he was not. So when we look at this verse we must recognize that Jesus is praying to his Father, but he's not praying to God separate from who he is. How do we know that? Because of the Hebrew Aramaic word that Jesus uses for God 
and the word Jesus Christ. So, let me be clear. Theologians understand that this verse is so nuanced that when we look at it in the original manuscripts, we can clearly see that Jesus is speaking to someone who is holding his glory, his divinity, which he possessed from time immemorial, forever and ever. Let me remind you that Jesus, the Christ, said in his own words that I am the Savior of the world. And we know from the Old Testament that the Bible clearly states that I am the Lord, Jehovah, and besides me there is no Savior. So we have to ask ourselves, what was Jesus saying to his Father in this prayer when he said, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent? The first thing we have to recognize is that the word even in Greek when translated for the only true God, is a very generic, simple word for God in Greek. And this is why the qualifier comes before it that says, the only true God. It's as if the Greeks understood that what they were looking at in the original manuscript indicated that Jesus knew that he was speaking to one entity of the Godhead. So when we see that Jesus appears to use his name, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, talking to his father, he didn't use the Greek word iosis, which is where we get the English word Jesus. But instead, he used a word which is very close to Yeshua, sometimes translated in English as the word Joshua, but it has a much more nuanced meaning, which, if we look that up in the lexicon, the translators let us know that this idea behind the word Jesus Christ is actually a word which was given a number. And that number is 2424. We see that 2424 is the transliteration of the word Iesus, the Greek term for Jesus, the transliteration of the Hebrew term 3091, as in Yehoshua or 
Yehoshua contracted to Joshua, which means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. So even the translators are admitting that the Greek word which got translated as Jesus when Jesus was speaking in the prayer was actually a Hebrew word which when looked at for its actual meaning means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is your salvation. We can remember that when the angel came to Mary in the book of Matthew, the angel said, Fear not, for you are going to have a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So we have to understand that the word used by Jesus in this prayer was not the word Jesus and not the word Christ in English. And it wasn't even the word for Jesus in Greek, but rather it was a word which intoned the name of God as Savior. Jesus in this prayer is calling himself to his Father, which was in heaven, Savior. Glorify me, the Savior of the world. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you from the beginning. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is none other than Jehovah. Remember that Jehovah has already stated, besides me, there is no Savior. It is for this reason that we must carefully look at the words which the translators use and the meaning of those words and their contextual meaning as well. So now we see that Jesus was actually speaking Aramaic, Hebrew, and the word he used was the word for Savior God, and he applied it to himself. So let me be clear. The Bible is the word of God. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament testify to the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave of himself. And in that giving, we obtain salvation, eternal life, glorious future. And Jesus the Christ came to earth from heaven, gave up all of his glory in order to show us how to live a Christ-like life. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Be blessed 
And remember, God loves you. You have been listening to The Dark Light. Thank you for joining us. Please like, subscribe, and tell your friends about The Dark Light Podcast. We would love to have you here each and every day to discover the light in the darkness.